Amen. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. Uh, good to see all of you here. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, this summer is very interesting. Um, <laughs> it's been a fun week because uh, on Monday and Tuesday, I prepared a sermon for a sermon series that I thought we were going to be doing this summer. And then on Wednesday, on our drive, all the pastors in our network get together on Wednesday mornings to talk about what they're going to be preaching. And on our drive on Wednesday morning, I told Jonathan, I really think we're not supposed to do this. We're supposed to do this. And so on Wednesday, we changed it. Uh, And I just wanted to let you know that this summer, because there's going to be a lot of coming and going, we try to do something a little more topical on a a weekly basis uh, in the summers. And this summer, we're going to be going back, if you can believe it, into Galatians uh, to, to look more closely at a passage that we really skipped over way too quickly. And we're going to take Galatians 5, where Paul begins to spell out what a what a spirit filled life looks like by using this metaphor of the fruit of the spirit. And he gives a list of certain inner heart characteristics uh, that that he understands to be the fruit of the spirit. And we're going to take those uh, one by one throughout the weeks of the summer and just really look at them and, and talk about how is it um, that God comes by his spirit and really works change into our hearts and our lives. How does the gospel do that? Uh, so welcome to the summer. That's what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. I really am excited about this and think it's going to be a lot of fun. And so if you have your Bible this morning and you want to turn, we're going to be, in, what, what happens is, is we're going to not stick to one place. Uh, most of the time we're going to go to Galatians 5 and read it and then bounce off of Galatians 5 into another passage or maybe two or three more passages that kind of open up uh, the idea of what we're looking at this morning. And if you haven't caught it, we try to thematically do our services. And if you haven't caught it this morning, we're talking about love today. Um, everything's been about love. It's all love this morning. Um, so come to Galatians 5 with me and let's read there. And then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 13. No worries. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me. And so let's read together this morning. Paul writing to the Galatians. But I say... Walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these things are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Anybody live there? But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And then 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes to the Corinthian Christians. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This is God's word. Uh, if you're at all, if you have any sensibility whatsoever to the church calendar, we're in the season in the church calendar, which is the season of Pentecost. And it is an extended celebration of the event that happened on the day of Pentecost in the Bible in Acts chapter two. And on Pentecost, the, the disciples were gathered together in Jerusalem and 
we're told that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, if you're if you're not a Christian, if you're new to Christianity, we believe that God is Trinity, that he is one God in power and essence uh, in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And on that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the disciples of Jesus were gathered together in Jerusalem and were told that the Spirit of God came upon them in power and that they spoke in tongues that they did not naturally possess and that God began to work miraculously in their midst. And I just want to say that that event, that Pentecost event, which we celebrated last Sunday on Pentecost Sunday and now through the rest of the, the Pentecost season, it is the result of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension to the Father, and it has very real impact on our lives 2,000 years later. And if you're a Christian, the Scripture is very clear that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus has come into your heart, this is what it means to be a Christian, in His absence to bring the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead to bear upon your life. Now just think about the implications of that. And so what I want to say, and what we're going to really look at for the next few weeks as, we're, as we come together uh, to Galatians 5 and this morning to 1 Corinthians 13, there is a difference, and this is the way we're going to put it, there is a difference between moral restraint or moral reformation and supernatural inner heart transformation. There's a difference between moral restraint and inner heart transformation. And the problem is, is that most people who call themselves a Christian, they were raised in a Christian family, or they had some some sort of spiritual, you know, spiritual experience at some point in their lives. And, and so they're trying really hard to do the right thing and to keep the rules. And so they go to church and they read their Bible and they, they do all the things they feel like they're supposed to do um, and be nice, you know, and all that stuff. But beneath the surface, they're angry and impatient and envious and jealous and indulgence because their heart, their hearts haven't been remade. And the promise of the scripture is very clear. If you go to the Old Testament, any, I mean, just really pick any place that you can think to go in the scripture and very quickly you'll come across passages of scripture that begin to talk about the promise of God, not just to come and to make everything nice and to prepare a place for us to go so we can kind of go be with him in heaven, but the promise is that he's going to come and he's going to work such a radical change in us that he's, he's going to give us new hearts. He's going to put a new spirit within us. He's going to take what's dead in us and bring it back to life. And so Paul says things like Second uh, Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is, can you finish it? A new creation. Everything that once was has gone away and behold, the, the new has come. And so we just want to try to get language in our in our minds and in our hearts to think through a theology of conversion that we believe when you become a Christian, it's not just that bad people start to become nice people. It is that dead people come to life. There is a resurrection that happens. There is a deep heart transformation. And if you look in Galate in that in the Galatians portion of what we just read a minute ago, there in verse 24 at the very or excuse me, 23 at the very end, the key phrase in this passage in Galatians 5, is this phrase that Paul uses there. He says, against such things, there is no law. Now, here's what Paul is trying to say to us there. You know, we have laws against murder, don't we? But uh, does anybody know of a law uh, that, against anger? I mean, can you imagine a law? Can you imagine uh, the, the state legislature going into session in Tallahassee to come up to to figure out how to pass a law against joylessness or a law against anxiety. 
By the way, that does not sound like a good idea to me. I'd end up in prison for the rest of my life. Right? So laws, what Paul's getting at is laws are forms of restraint. They restrain moral behavior by threatening punishment. And in some measure, they can put a check on our hearts. You know, they can put a check on hearts that are messed up, but they can't reach into the heart and deal directly with the messed upness of the heart. They might be able to restrain behavior, but they can't reach into the heart and change its motivations and its desires. And if you're a parent, so let me speak to parents this morning. If you're a parent, you know the difference in your kids, don't you? And in your parenting, I hope. I hope you know the difference. You're going after deep heart transformation in your kids and not just begrudging conformity to the rules. And so a lot of times um, what we do, we're going to talk a lot about this in the weeks to come, what we do is we leverage fear or pride in our kids. We say things like this. We say, and I'm as guilty as anybody, we say, clean your room or you're going to get it. Right? Or we say, you know, don't act like that. Good people don't act like that. And, And what's so concerning about this is that in the moral training of our children, we can be trying to shape their behavior through the enforcement of rules, and we're doing it at the expense of joy and peace in them. That, in other words, law... As Paul says here, rules establish external moral behavior, but they do so at the expense of inner joy and peace. And by leveraging fear and pride, we're, 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 what we're doing is we're nurturing the very roots of sinful, sinful behavior in them. In other words, laws and rules can outwardly restrain, but how do, we, do our hearts get changed? And what Paul's teaching us is it's only by the working of the Spirit deep in us that our hearts get changed. Only the Spirit can come inside and change the motivations and the desires of the heart. And that's what we're going to be looking at in this series. The difference between a morally restrained heart and a supernaturally changed heart. And what Paul does here in Galatians 5, if you look there with me, he gives us a picture of what a heart transformed by the Spirit is. And he uses the analogy of fruit. Uh, the Spirit is the life principle of God breathed into us when we trust in Jesus to save us. It is spiritual power that comes, and it bears fruit in us. Now, how do you know if a plant's healthy? How do you know if a tree's healthy? It bears fruit, right? The fruit is the evidence of a plant's vitality and health. And in the same way, the way you know you're a Christian, the way you know that God's Spirit is working in you is there's fruit. Here's what's amazing to me. The fruit is not the things that we expect it to be. The fruit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. So we're going to have to do a lot of self-examination this summer as we come to this text. We're going to have to really ask hard questions of our own hearts. And so this morning, let's do this then. And let's just put this under three headings. Let's talk about these three things quickly. What inner heart transformation is, number one. Number two, what inner heart transformation is. uh, Excuse me, I messed that up. Number one, what inner heart transformation is not. Secondly, what inner heart transformation is. And then thirdly, how does it happen or how, how, do we, how, do, how does change come? How is the heart changed? So what inner heart transformation is not first. Then secondly, what it is. And then thirdly, how does it happen in us? And so let's just start by coming to 1 Corinthians 13 and looking first at Paul telling us what this inner heart transformation we're talking about is not. Okay? 1 Corinthians 13 Paul there gives a pretty impressive list of spiritual gifts and abilities. I mean, Corinth was a city, much like the big cities in our culture, where all of the most gifted and the most talented people congregated. The, the, the people who lived in Corinth would have come there. It was, a, it was a relatively new city at the time that Paul was writing. And so they had come there not because they grew up there, not because they had family ties there, 
they came there to make it. Uh, they would have been, it would, Corinth would have been a collection of the most ambitious and the most, most talented and the most gifted people in the society at that time. And so it makes sense that the church at Corinth reflected the larger population of the city. The Corinthian church was very talented. They were very gifted. There were a lot of people who were, who were very ambitious. They were performance driven. They were big on doing and small on being. And they had impressive spiritual resumes. They were very interested in the spiritual gifts. And you get that in chapters 12 and 14 on both sides of verse 13. But they weren't all of that. But, but at the same time, they weren't patient and they weren't very kind. They were full of envy and boasting. They were arrogant and rude. And Paul, quite honestly, has some harsh things to say to this group of people about wh- where they've gone wrong. And there are two things in particular he wants to say to them. So let's look here. Uh, first, what Paul is saying is, is first, inner heart transformation is not being gifted. It's not the same as being gifted. Okay, so look at verse one, how Paul begins to describe to describe the Corinthians. It's just amazing to me. Okay, verse one, if I speak in the tongue of men's men and angels. Now, this is a reference to the spiritual gift of tongues. Uh, And if you're not familiar with that, you can go home today and read chapter 12, where he talks about that. And especially chapter 14 on both sides of chapter 13. It comes right after 12, where he talks about spiritual gifts and right before 14, chapter 14, where he talks specifically about tongues. It was a spiritual gift that was given to the church for the propagation of the gospel in all the world among nations and languages, which, you know, normal Jewish fishermen would not have been able to pick up easily. And God poured out the spirit of, you know, on on the church and gave them the gift of tongues. And Paul says, so if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a claiming symbol. Verse two, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Now, this is the gift of prophecy. Prophecy is the ability to, to, to receive direct communication from God himself and to communicate that to other people. It's a communication gift. It's a gift of teaching and preaching and, and dealing in direct revelation from God. It's understanding mysteries, you know, having knowledge. These are intellectual gifts. They're, it's being intellectually or theologically rigorous. It's just having a mind for the scriptures and being able to communicate them well he goes on if i have faith all faith so as to remove mountains and this is not just saving faith but again it's a gift that the spirit gave it's a gift of leadership of being able to to cast vision in such a way that it's infectious and causes people to make sacrifices they wouldn't otherwise make it's it's really it's really the gift to really rely and depend upon god to get the supernatural done probably refers to working miracles as well. And so Paul gives this list, and it's an impressive list, but make sure you hear what Paul's saying. He says, he says, you can be powerfully engaged in Christian service through the gifts of the Spirit, and if there is not love, then it's nothing. You can get direct revelation from God. I mean, people's lives might be, be, might be being changed through, through your ministry. You might be a leader in the church. All of this could be true of you, and, and it could mean, it could be absolutely nothing, Paul says. Now, a, a, maybe a year ago, and I'm sure most of you are aware of this, uh, there was a revival that happened in the city of Lakeland while I was a pastor there. Did any of you guys catch this? Uh, and we knew people from, we, Jonathan and I traveled to Uganda a couple years ago, and the guys from Uganda, people literally descended from all over the world on the city of Lakeland because there was a major outpouring of the Spirit there and a huge revival. That went on and there were claims of, of people being raised from the dead, of miraculous healings, of all kinds of amazing feats and works of the spirit of God 
Uh, and the saddest part of the whole deal is that the thing ended because the man who who had been anointed by God through the Spirit to do all these things um, had an affair and left his family. And the whole thing fell apart. Now, does that call into question all the things that 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 were happening there? I, I don't I, I don't have an answer for that. But does Paul speak to that situation? He says, yes, you can do all of these fantastic things. And if it leads you to not love, especially the one person in your life that you're supposed to love the most, it is nothing. Because the goal is love. See, the mistake we make is we see somebody who's talented and who God is using powerfully and we mistake the gifts and the talents for character. And what Paul is saying, what Paul is saying here is that it's possible to do miracles. I mean, just, he's saying it's possible to do miracles through the power of God and still to have never given your heart to God. You can do lots of great stuff through the gifts that he has given to you and, and never have given, you know, you can do that without ever evacuating the throne of your life and putting God there. Gifts and inner heart transformation are so distinct from one another that God can do miracles through you and you might not even be a Christian. You remember what Jesus says on, at Matthew 7? He says, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not work miracles? And he will say, I never knew you. I mean, so you need to see all the emphasis on the church is on what we're doing. And Paul says the only really important thing in your life is, is, is your character being changed. Inner heart transformation, like we're talking about, is not being gifted. But there's a second thing here. And not only is it not being gifted, he says it's not being good either. So in verse 3, look there, he starts another list and he says, and this one, this one is, hits more home to me. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, he says, okay? So this is morally virtuous behavior. He's saying, if I give away everything, uh, that's radical generosity. I mean, it's a willingness to live in simplicity. If, he says, if I deliver up my body to be burned. I mean, this is a person who lives with such conviction that he's literally willing to die for the truth, okay? So let's take a poll. I mean, let's just take a poll this morning. By a show of hands, how many of you are, are willing to leave here and empty out your savings account for the sake of, of Jesus' kingdom? Anybody? Okay, seeing none. Well, if you don't have a savings account, then maybe that, you know. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. I'm there. Okay. How many of you are ready? We'll leave this afternoon at 2 o'clock. How many of you are ready to get on a plane and go to Afghanistan and preach the gospel in the public square? No, thank you. Paul's saying it's possible to be that committed and still doing nothing. It's not, do you see there in verse 3, this time it's not that I am nothing, this time it's I gain nothing. And that word translated there in verse 3, I gain nothing at the very end, uh, it, it means that you could literally give away all your money and willingly die for the faith and it literally count for nothing. It merits you nothing. It earns you nothing. You could do it all, you could do all that, and you still would, wouldn't count because it wouldn't be motivated by love. Now, just, just think about that for a second. Paul says, you can do all of that and it still not be love. And it makes all of your spiritual, you know, working worthless. Now, how can that be? See, what Paul's trying to help us understand about our hearts here is that it's possible to do good deeds and to help others and to sacrifice and to give generously in order to count in order to prove that you're really a good person or, you know, to do these things in order to gain God's approval or, or the respect of other other people. And this this um, 
the, the language he used here to describe this is really fascinating. When he talks about being a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, I remember <laughs> the first trip, I took, I took about nine trips to India before I came to the pastor of this church. And on my first trip to India, we stayed in a hotel that wasn't as nice as some of the others we stayed in. It was, we were on the second floor, and so you pretty much could hear what was going on uh, in the streets. And I remember my first morning, the first morning I woke up in India, I was, I was awakened you know, way before my body was ready to get up because of jet lag by sounds, just crazy shouting and yelling and clanging stuff and just like somebody was just going nutso in the street outside. And so I got up and said, I've got to go see what's going on. This is what in the world. So the guy that I'm with and I went out there and we realized um, that right outside kind of where our window was, there was a there was a neighborhood temple. Every neighborhood has a temple because they worship billions of gods. And so there was this temple and all the worshipers had gathered outside and they were all yelling, literally yelling and screaming and banging on pots and pans and doing everything they could. And I turned to the guy and said, what are they doing? And he said, they're trying to wake the gods up. I said, that's what they're doing. They're trying to get the gods' attention. So they'll come and so that they can ask for blessing and so they can have a good day. I mean, that's what Paul, that's, that's the metaphor, that's the imagery Paul really wants us to see here. He says, if you're generous to count, if you're generous so that you will count, to say, you know, now I know God will love me and now other people will see me as a good person. I mean, then if that, if that's what your generosity is about, then it's about you. I mean, it's possible to be loving without love because you're still motivated by selfishness. And so all that's happening in what Paul's describing here is a desire to do good to take, you know, it's a taking your selfishness. All it's doing is it's taking your selfishness and it's using your selfishness in a way that makes you be a help to other people. But it's still selfishness. Your heart's not being changed. The selfishness and the neediness of the heart is still there and it's active. You're just jury rigging the heart so that you do good and get a, so that you can get applause and get acclaim from it. But you're doing these things to meet your own needs and not to serve and to meet the needs of others. And that's the issue. And we're going to finish by coming back to that. But you see, Paul thankfully Paul not only describes what it's not what this inner heart transformation is not here but he goes on in the same verses and he's going to begin to describe what I would call the most excellent way and that comes from chapter 12 verse 31 he says right before this chapter 13 now I will show you the most excellent way you see the inner heart transformation Paul's describing here in Galatians 5 is not being gifted and it's not being good both of those things are public they're outward but what Paul is describing in both of these passages is something that is internal and private. And look at Paul's list there. I mean, this is what blows my mind in verses 4 through 8. We look there, just look at those words. You see how subtle it is? I mean, it's the stuff that's below your behavior. I mean, you can give your money away and follow the rules, but are you patient with people? You know, do you get irritable? Are you harsh? Are you self-centered? Are you always getting your feelings hurt? Are you, you know, are you driven? And the word that describes this inner heart character that Paul's talking about is the first word in Paul's list in Galatians 5. And it's the word that we want to just stop and meditate on for just a minute. And that is the word love. It's love. With Jonathan Edwards, who's a Puritan theologian, some people say the greatest theologian that America's ever produced, he wrote a, wrote a, a series of sermons called Charity and Its Fruit. And in that series, he said that this is the one thing that distinguishes Christians. Love. It is the sum of this is the sum of Christianity. It's what Christianity is all about. And most commentators, when they read Galatians 5, what they see is they see Paul, they read it this way. They see Galatians 5 as saying, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then all of the other words that come after it are just descriptors of this one summary, that it's love. And so love, as Paul defines it here, means 
meeting somebody else's needs rather than meeting your own. It's the word agape in the Greek, and we're all probably familiar with that. It describes a supernatural quality of loving someone. It's not friendship love. It's not erotic love. It's a love that is absent of all self-interest and self-centeredness. It's other-centered love. You know, agape means to consider others better or more important than yourselves. It means to consider their needs more desirous, you know, more, more, more defining and more important than your own needs, and to put all of your energy and all of your resources to work to care for other people and meet their needs with absolutely no thought for your own needs. And it's a word that describes how God has loved us, that this is the way that he has loved us. And you see that in First John 3, which we read a little while ago. That the Father loved us and gave his Son for us. That Jesus thought not for his own safety or comfort or pleasure. He did not seek his own welfare. He did not live for himself. But with his whole life, with every breath, he lived for one purpose. And that was to love us. And so I just want us to take a minute and just walk through this and see that the love that Paul describes here, the things he has to say. I mean, we really do an injustice by reading this stuff at, at weddings and just thinking it's just so nice and frilly. Isn't it just great? Love is patient. I mean, Paul's getting to the nitty-gritty of just what it, what's really going on down there in the, in the gross parts of our hearts. I mean, it's the stuff you can't, you can't work this stuff up. I mean, you can't produce this stuff. It's, it's the stuff that's underneath our behavior. And so just, let's just kind of read it, and I'm just going to make a couple comments as we go through, and then we're going to wrap things up, okay? He says, love is patient. Literally, uh, it suffers long. Love is kind, there, verse 4. Uh, kindness means you give others what they need. It means you focus on what the other person needs and not what you need. He says love does not envy. It literally doesn't. Uh, the word means it, it doesn't boil. <laughs> love is quiet. It's content. It's always able to find more to be grateful for than more to complain about. There's not a lot of epi emotion in it. It's just, just quiet. It doesn't boil. It doesn't boast. It doesn't draw attention to itself. Love is quiet in conversation and, and listens. It doesn't have to be the center of attention. Love. Love would rather talk about someone else other than itself. It isn't arrogant, Paul says there in verse 4. Literally, that means puffed up. Love is always more impressed with the deeds of others than its own. Love doesn't insist on its own way, he says. It doesn't seek its own. It doesn't force itself on others. Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. It isn't always me first. Love is not irritable or resentful. There's joy. It's not argumentative there's no irritation and or sharpness or harshness in love love doesn't hold grudges it doesn't keep score of the sins of others it's truthful paul says it bears all things the word literally means to cover it protects it absorbs the cost of an offense instead of making the other person pay love believes all things it's hopeful it's not cynical it never gives up on people and then he finishes by saying love never ends it endures it pushes through every excuse to stop and it, and it puts itself its love puts its favor and its delight on someone and never takes it off now i mean that's what we're being called to here and every time i get tempted to water down the kind of sacrifice and generosity we're called to god seems to send my friend tim mitchell into my life Tim Mitchell is the director of Parker Street Ministries in Lakeland. Uh, here's a young man who uh, moved into the poorest, darkest, hardest neighborhood in the city of Lakeland and said, I'm going to live here among these people, and I'm going to care for them. 
Uh, and he's gathered a team of people. Just They're just an amazing group of people. And I had the unfortunate accident of running into him this week um, because he he doesn't look at upwardly mobile uh, white church planners with a great deal of respect or admiration. That's a joke. But he has pretty harsh things to say to us most of the time. And we just got to talking. And, you know, in, in pure, you know, Tim Mitchell fashion, he looked me in the face and he says, you better go tell your people uh, that love requires that, that and we were just talking about what is love? How do you know how to love? I mean, what the hardship of how to know what love really, I'm a, I'm a dad, and so I have to love my kids, and I'm a husband, and I have to love my wife, and how do I love them? And, and he just says, you know, shut up. What are you talking about? He said, you know, and I'm talking about, well, i got to love my kids. He said, be careful. You know, maybe love requires that your kids don't get to go to college because you pay for somebody else's kids to go to college. And I said, but, You know, and so we went around and around and around and I came home feeling guilty like I don't know. I have no clue what love is and he does and I don't know how to even get this stuff done. You know, and, and so I just so we just said, I said, I need you guys to help me. So how do we know when it's love? And the answer we came up with, and this is brilliant. I really think this is brilliant. The, what, the bottom line of what we came to is it's not love until it really hurts. You know, when it really costs something, it's love when you die. That when you go uh, without so that someone else can have, when your agenda gets trumped so someone else, you know, someone else's agenda gets forwarded, it, it has to hurt. I mean, for Jesus to love us, it cost him his life. He had to die to save us. He had to literally become poor so that we might become rich. And if we're going to love one another as he has loved us, as the scripture calls us to, then the only way, the only indicator we have that we've really passed into love is that it really starts to hurt. And so the evidence of a genuine spiritual life is inner heart transformation, but it's not being gifted and it's not being good. It's it, what, what happens is it's being graced. It's being graced by love. It's coming into a life of love. And we couldn't have a sermon without a Tim Keller quote, it seems. And so to quote Tim Keller, a pastor in our denomination who's thought about these things a lot more than me, because he's a lot older than I have than I am. But he says he's going back. He goes back to this this idea of clangy gongs. Noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. He says, just just listen, because this is really powerful to me. He says, pagan temple worship was based on the idea that it's our job to attract and merit the, the attention of the gods. That's what those people were doing in that little neighborhood where I was staying in India. So you came in, you made your sacrifices and showed with great pageantry your honor of the God. You would do anything you could to show the God your honor and deference and piety. And then and then you believed you attracted and merited the God's favor and blessing. He writes. Paul has the audacity to say that it's very possible to come inside the Christian construct to read the Bible, to read the Ten Commandments, to start to preach, to lead Bible studies, to help the poor, to come into all of that, but to not change your fundamental relationship with God, to be doing all of that as a way of clanging a symbol. He says every other religion says you go and you sacrifice, you hurt, you cut yourself, you throw your body into the flames, you do all of that to show the God and attract his attention, but only Christianity and the whole world claims that God has come, that he is sacrificed, that he has become poor and gave it all away, that he, as it were, threw his body into the flames, and he did this to attract you. I heard a lot of... You see, the pagan religious construct says, I'm going to do all of this so that I'll count with God. You know, I'm going to do this stuff and finally I'll count. But the implication for the Christian is in order for it to really be love, 
in order for us to really get at what Paul's calling us to, you have to count and you have to know you count with God before you do this stuff. You know, if you don't know you count, then you'll be motivated at least in part from selfishness. You'll be doing all the good things you're doing. You'll be engaged in all of the religious activity you're engaged in as a way of satisfying an inner emotional neediness and not doing it out of the overflow of an emotional fullness. And very clearly what the scripture teaches is that God's love for us flows out of the fullness of the life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as they exist in eternal communion with one another. God does not need anything from us. He's not motivated by anything in us, by anything selfish at all. And that's what makes it love. And so no matter what good I might try to do, no matter how generous I might try to be, if I'm needy and not full, then I'm going to be trying to meet my needs. I'm going to be operating with selfish motivations. And it is that self-love, that weak self-love that we that we sing about, that and that deeply rooted self-interest that the Spirit is coming, the Scripture says, to work in us to heal. It is the distinguishing mark of a true follower of Jesus to be absent of this self-interest, that the Spirit of God is working in the deep parts of our hearts to overcome our self-love and selfishness. And only the Gospel can do that, because only in the Gospel... Only in the gospel do we find the affirmation and the approval our hearts so long for. Because in the gospel, Jesus died so that we might live. He faced the Father's wrath so that we could live under the Father's smile. And in the gospel, God is screaming to us, I love you. I delight in you. You're mine. I've died for you. I could not have greater affection for you than I possibly can. And it fills up the emptiness inside of us. And so we don't need anything. Now we're not motivated by by selfish by selfish agenda. You see, what Paul's trying to teach us here is this: that the way to get a changed heart and the love that flows out of a supernaturally changed heart is a complete reversal of your relationship with God by seeing that it's not we don't have to clang gongs and and crash symbols to get his attention. No, the truth of Christianity is is that God has come from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus to get our attention. And it is God who has suffered, and it is God who does not insist on his own way. The beautiful thing about 1 Corinthians 13, and almost every translation any, any of you have in this room gets it wrong. Because if you read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, if you read it the way it's printed in your Bibles, it looks as if it, it's describing a list of, of, of adverbs that are qualifying what love looks like. But in the original language, uh, those aren't adverbs, they're verbs. And Paul is doing that on person. He is personifying love. He wants us to read that list and he wants us to see a person. And you have to read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 and see it as Jesus doing that on the cross for you. Love is a person. And you will never be a loving person if you think of love as a set of guidelines that you have to pick up. Oh, I've got to be patient. You know, I, oh, I've got to. I just, I gotta, I'm not kind. I really got to be kind. And you will never be a loving person if you think of love as a set of guidelines that you have to pick up and breathe life into. No, love is a living, active power that has to get a hold of you and breathe life into you. And that's why I called this sermon Graced by Love. We possess love only when it comes from outside and breathes life into us. The kind of love the Bible talks about uh, being the natural overflow of our hearts is not something we can produce. Good luck. Good luck going out the door and getting this stuff done. It must come from outside and take possession of us before it can really begin to work its way through us and out of us and into the life of others. And that's really what we're dealing with here.
And so two applications, just as we close and we come to the supper this morning, just two things for you to ponder as we really think about what it means to move toward a life of love. And the first is this, is that if you look at Galatians 5, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, it, it's an interesting thing. There's a list of them, and yet Paul uses the verb in the singular. If you look really closely there, he says the fruit of the Spirit is, doesn't he? He doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. He says the fruit of the Spirit is. And so Paul wants us to understand that all of these things go together, and all are defined by this one word, love. And it's not, you can't look at this list and you say, hmm, you know what, I'm pretty joyful, but that kindness thing's really hard for me. You know, or, you know, I, I'm, you know, patience, yeah, I got that, but, but you know, gentleness, not so much. Paul's saying you've got to look at this list and you've got to see that what, Paul, what he's trying to teach us is that they all come together. And so that means you're only as strong as your greatest weakness. And the gospel's creating a unique person that's both gentle and kind, you know, full of faith and courageous, you know, gentle and kind and full of faith. In other words, the gospel doesn't produce sissies who are just gentle and sweet and just, just nice, you know, hippie Jesus with product in his hair and, you know, whatever that thing is that is out there. It's not just the gospel doesn't produce sissies, but it doesn't produce built bullies either. It produces people who are courageous and bold and strong, but at the same time, you know, weak and humble and gentle. And so it all comes together. And then secondly, I just want I just want to say this to you before we move on. And that is that it, that this only happens through a lot of hard work and it happens slowly. Uh, we planted a garden. It's fruit, right? Fruit. And we planted a garden in our yard, and I didn't get the, I didn't, we didn't get the picture, but I had a, I took a picture because we, I mean, we, I've worked, you know, we, I shouldn't say I, we've worked on this garden for months. I mean, it's, you know, just this little patch of land, you know, we have like a, I think our side yard is maybe three feet wide or something like that, but somehow we dug it out and we got it down in there and we put the stuff, the compost in there, and, you know, we worked in and we planted and we come and we've just been working for months and months and months and finally we got to eat the fruit of our, you know, labor, and it was a little basket of stuff about this big. I thought, holy smokes, I mean, all that, okay, we can have a salad and then call it a, you know, call it a season. You know, all right, good job, months of work. And I just thought, man, I mean, that's what, that's what Paul's saying, and it's fruit. It doesn't come easily. The flesh and the spirit, he says in verse 17 of Galatians 5, they fight, you know, it's just a lot of hard work, and, it's, and it comes really slowly. And yet, if you belong to him, then what the Scripture very clearly teaches is that his spirit is alive in the world and will come into your heart and begin to work this great work in you. And so let's just stop and pray that he would come and do that in us. Will you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we feel how absolutely unable we are in our own strength to accomplish any of this, and so we pray that you would come. Uh, we beg you to come and work by the power of your spirit in us to overcome our selfishness and our self-centeredness and to produce in us hearts supernaturally changed by your spirit that beat with a different heartbeat, the beat of love instead of selfishness, the beat of, of, of self-giving love instead of self-interest. And so we pray that you would come um, and do this in us because we know it would be for great glory for you if you would accomplish this work in us. And so help us to be a people Defined more and more, not by the pursuit of spiritual gifts, uh, not by the pursuit of fame or popularity or the, a good record of being known as a really good person, but people who give their lives in the pursuit of love. And may it be for your great glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table, um, one of the things we want to do is in response to, the, to God's word, as we just heard it preached, we want to stand.
uh, and confess our faith by reciting together the Apostles' Creed. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we say this together. Uh, And I say to you, Christian, in an age of unbelief, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I always look forward to the first Sunday of the month when we get to celebrate this meal together. It is one of the highlights of my career as a young pastor. Uh, And I really thought of it this way this morning. It is at this table, in this bread and this cup, where love is truly put on display. I mean, love is put on display here. And there really are two problems that we come up against uh, when you talk about love. Uh, There are really two things you have to overcome. And the first is it's just not always easy to know what love is, is it? I mean, just what is love? What does it require? That's what my friend Tim and I were trying to trying to figure out. How do you know what love is? And the beautiful reminder this morning in Jesus' body laid before us and his blood shed for us is that, that the scripture says that love literally came out of heaven and walked among us. He lived a life of absolute love. And if you put yourself in a discipleship relationship with him, then through the spirit, he can teach you how to love. The second thing, it's one thing to know what love requires. It's another thing, once I know what love requires, to say, how in the world do I find the energy to get that done? And that's where the promise of the gospel is a great promise. The promise of the gospel is not not just that Jesus Christ died for our sins. The promise of the gospel is that he was raised, he ascended to the Father in heaven, and from heaven he has sent the Spirit into our heart. His Spirit, the power of God that raised him from the dead into our hearts, to animate us where we are otherwise dead toward a life of love. And so there is a power that is available to you and the dependence on the Spirit to go and to live the life He's calling you to. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that's the reality that we celebrate as we come to this table. Now, we believe very clearly that the Scripture asks us to enter into a process of self-examination and preparation for coming and eating this meal. The way we try to do that around here is this. is We want to ask two questions of you. Um, as you seek to really prepare your hearts to eat in a way that is that is fitting uh, and not in an unworthy manner. And those two questions are this. The scripture says that the law, all that God demands and expects of us can be summed up in these two things. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So let me ask you a question. Um, do, is your faith in Jesus Christ? And have you gone on public record with him? That, that you need a Savior and you put your hopes and your dependence and your trust in Him to save you. If so, then this meal is for you. If No matter what your sin may be, no matter, how, you know, no matter what the big nasties in your life may be, if you are a sinner trusting in Jesus to be a friend of sinners, then this is your meal. Come and eat. If you've never made a public profession of your faith in Jesus Christ, then we ask you to really just consider that. We'll celebrate this meal together again, but this is a meal for those who believe in Jesus. It's reserved for those who put their faith and trust in him, who feast on his body and, and drink uh, the cup that is his blood. Uh, that, that's the reality. But secondly, 
Um, not only is your faith in Jesus Christ, but is there a need for you to be reconciled in any relationships in your life? This is a meal of reconciliation. It's here through his body broken and his blood shed that we are reconciled to God. And so the scripture very clearly says, if there's a need for us to be reconciled to one another, that the way we ought to go about that is, go, take care of that, uh, leave the altar, be reconciled to your brother, do the hard work of seeking peace in your relationships, and then come back uh, to the altar to take this meal. And so we just ask those two questions in a matter of self-reflection. As your conscience allows you, you know, there will be room for you to come back next month. But if, but if your conscience is free in both of those areas, then we, we invite you to come and to feast on this meal with us this morning. The way this works is there'll be people down at both of these aisles here. Come, take the bread, take the cup, return to your seats, and after everybody's been served, we will all partake of the meal together. Okay? Wonderful. Again, it is at this table that love is put on display. The lo- you know, the, here's where love is defined for us once and for all. And so on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he was gathered at a meal with his disciples, and he took bread. And standing up in front of them, he broke the bread. And he said to them, this is my body broken for you. And after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you. Come, eat my flesh. Drink my blood. And if you do so, I will abide in you and you will abide in me. So let's pray together this morning as we prepare to come. And would those who are helping serve, would you guys come on? Judy, Mary Ann, can y'all come? Thank you. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, what wonderful provision you have uh, given to us in this meal that we celebrate together this morning. The Savior's shed blood and his broken body uh, where our sin deserved death and punishment. He went in in our place to allow his body to be broken and crushed, to allow his blood to be spilt where ours should have been, to face the wrath and the condemnation of the Father so that we might rest underneath his smile and be the object of his joy and delight. What amazing good news that is. And so we pray today, Jesus, that you would come through the Spirit as you promised to do as we celebrate this meal together. Come and draw near to us, use this sacrament, this sacred sign, to be a, a sign to us of the love in Jesus for us, and also a seal of that love, that you might come and, and begin to use even this meal to, to produce in us and to work into us hearts that have been stripped of self-interest and self-concern, and that beat with radical generosity and love, that it might be to your glory. Come and dine with us as we celebrate your death and on our behalf. May be a powerful experience of grace for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Here is where love is put on display. It is him it is jesus he is the love that must come and take a hold of your heart and breathe life into it Uh, this meal celebrates not only his death but also his resurrection and his ability to do the very thing we need him to do so taking the bread together take this is his body broken for you
now taking the cup. This is his blood shed for you. Let's pray. Jesus, your body and broken and your bloodshed are for us life and joy and peace and glory. Uh, we cannot adequately express our thanks. And we are amazed. And I pray you would turn our amazement into action and our joy into lives of sacrificial service uh, for the sake of love that you might be glorified in and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. This morning, as we do, amen. So as you go uh, to parent, uh, to uh, figure out marriage, uh, as you go to all the places God calls you to, um, don't be discouraged. Uh, I gave up on my on my wife on Monday of this week, and she gave up on me on Friday. <laughs> and we had to confess that sin to one another. But if you read there, love never gives up. Love never fails. It keeps going. And the energy and the power to do that is to know that love is not some abstract ideal. Love is a person who promises to come so close that he would come into your heart and to live there, to teach you how to love and to empower you to love. And that is the promise of the benediction, that all of the Father's uh, gifts, all of the Father's generous provision is yours in Christ if your faith is in him. And so receive the benediction this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.